We've been talking about the way Jesus framed the issue of the gospel. Gospel meaning good news, right? So the New Testament, the ministry of Jesus, when he comes as the king of heaven to earth, very humble, born in a stable, raised in a carpenter's home, worked with his hands till he was 30 years old, amazingly humble, the God of the ordinary. But when it came time to start announcing his message, he framed the issue in a particular way. Now, we all frame the issue, right? We do it in order to convince people of the validity of what we're saying. So if I have a point of view, actually, we're all skilled at shaping the argument so that it's most convincing. So we leave out some facts and we, we stack the facts the, and, and it's normal. We watch the news and we know we're not watching the news. We're watching somebody's massaging of the news. We're watching the spin of the news. We're watching somebody frame the issue of the news, right? And the rush in the news media is always to get there first and frame the issue first. There's nothing wrong with framing the issue unless it's dishonest. Jesus framed the issue. The God of the universe framed the issue. He could have framed the issue of salvation as faith. Just have faith in God. He didn't. He could have framed the issue as a gift. A grace gift. Here. This is a gift from God to you because God loves you. He wants to forgive you and he wants you to go to heaven when you die. So here, here's a gift. We frame it that way in our day, but he didn't frame it that way. The way he framed it for three years was absolutely consistent. He framed it as the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. What does that mean? That means the government of God has arrived on earth in me, the king of heaven. Not me, Jesus. Uh, repent. In other words, if indeed ultimate authority, ultimate leadership has arrived, what should you do about it? And the answer is, get on the good side. Repent. That means change your mind about who ought to be in control. And that's the way he consistently framed the issue. So in his day, it was a, a wonderful message to people who were ready to let God be God and to take over in their lives. It was a very unpleasant, extremely unpleasant message for people who wanted to stay in control of their lives and do their own thing and go their own way. It's always been unpleasant, that message. When God asks you, let me be God, let me take over, and you don't want it, you don't want him, you want your own way, it will always cost, it will always create a hostile reaction. People in Jesus' day were so hostile in their desire to keep their kingdoms and to resist his, 
that they killed him. We're capable of that. If someone gets in our way and we get angry about it, if somebody calls us to account and says, you should or shouldn't do that, and we do not want to face that, we're capable of violence. And in, in the crucifixion of Jesus, the human race proved how strongly we are committed to wanting our own way. I'd like to take you to Matthew chapter 4. If you take your Bible, turn to the first gospel in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. And I'm just going to read a few verses because I want to introduce the topic of how Jesus asked people to follow him. He didn't ask them to believe in him. He didn't ask them to trust him, although that's all involved in this. The word he used most often, over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament is follow me. Follow me. So let's take a look at one of the first places where uh, that took place. This is Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. So here's a review of the message of Jesus. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Exactly what I was just talking about. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the, the lake, for they were fishermen. It was a family business. They worked for um, their relatives. So Jesus walks up to them and he says, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men, not just fish. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Now that's a faith decision, a faith, faith choice. It's a belief choice. It's a trust choice. But it's an action choice. Then Jesus went on down the shore. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, again a family business. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I don't know about you, but if you put yourself in the, the shoes of those four fishermen and Jesus abruptly comes up to you and says, follow me, it's a, it's a gulp kind of an experience. It's, what? I'm... Um, Busy. I'm fishing. I'm running the family business. It's unreasonable for you to ask me to just stop what I'm doing and start doing what you're doing. But that's exactly what Jesus asked of them. And amazingly, that's what they did. They complied. Um, what did Jesus expect his, his followers to do after hearing his message uh, of a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, and of he as the, the king of that kingdom. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to just take that apart. And um, I'm going to start with this, this slide that we've been looking at all uh, month. 
Remind, uh, just a reminder, this is what we look like to God when we want our own way. When we're determined that we're going to live life the way we please, we don't want God telling us what to do, we look like we're fortressed. We look like we've built a castle around ourselves so that we don't have to deal with him. In fact, the castle is a way of keeping him out. That's what sin does to us. Sin is not doing things wrong. It's not being imperfect or being human. Sin is saying to God, don't touch my life. Except if I get in trouble. Then it's okay. (laughs) If I need you, I'll call. The rest of the time, let me do my own thing. Let me go my own way. Well, here's a, a list, a partial list of the way Jesus uh, asked for uh, a response from people. It's his favorite way. Come, follow me. We just looked at it. It's his favorite request. He did say, believe in me. He did say, um, have faith in me. But most often, this is what he said, and this includes faith and belief, all right? You won't follow him unless you do have faith in him and trust him and believe in him. So, over and over again, story after story, it ends with, follow me. At Matthew 9, 9, Matthew, the writer of the book, says, this is what happened to me. I was collecting taxes, minding my own business, and this guy, Jesus, walked up to me and just out of the blue said, follow me, and I had a choice to make. And I got up. I left my tax collecting business and I followed him. Matthew 10:38. Anyone who does not take up his cross. Now Jesus is getting down to gritty details. And he says, anybody who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, don't do the cheap thing of, hey, I'll be religious, I'll go to church, I'll say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to run my own life. I'm going to live my own life. That idea of taking up your cross has something to do with sacrifice. It has something to do with dying to yourself and your own self-interest. Follow me, he said. If you don't, you're not worthy of me. Matthew 16:24 says if anyone would come after me he must deny himself his own self-interest his own self-will and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up your cross by the way is not taking up his cross it's taking up your own self-sacrifice. Matthew 19:21 says this this is the um, the story of the rich young ruler the young man who ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees and said, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? So he's got everything. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's got power, but he doesn't have assurance of what's going to happen to him after he dies. And he wants that. And he asked Jesus for it, and Jesus said, Sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you remember the reaction of the young man? It says he went away... Sad. Why? He had a kingdom. 
He had many possessions. He was wealthy. For Jesus to say, sell your possessions, give to the poor, struck him as unreasonable. Too much to ask. And so he went away sad. What Jesus was asking for, and, and by the way, Jesus, when you come to Christ, he doesn't say, give me your money or give me your stuff. He says, give me your heart and follow me. Let your possessions be part of the way I bless the world. See, sell your possessions doesn't say liquidate and follow me. He says, sell it and give it. Bless other people's lives with it. Meet others, other people's needs with it. And you will have reward in heaven. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, exchange kingdoms with me. I'll give you mine if you give me yours. Good deal. Infinitely good deal. John 8.12 says, Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, remember, this is, uh, these are snapshots. Um, this is an incomplete list of the follow me passages. This is some of them. But whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He preceded that by saying, I am the light of the world. So if you follow me, you're going to be walking in the light, not in darkness. John 10.4 is the Good Shepherd passage in the New Testament where he says, my sheep, follow me because they know my voice. He says it again later in the same passage, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I think that's enough to give you a sample of how Jesus asked for a response. Now, let's just summarize that. Why is this important? For the simple reason that following means that the leadership issue is settled in Jesus' favor. Um, Jude, would you come up here for a minute? Jude is my grandson, and so I'm, I'm presuming on him. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. I'm glad you came today. Me too. Yeah. Um, I'm going to uh, go this way, and I'll pretend I'm your leader, all right? Okay. All right. And you're my follower. So this, is, this process is going to go like this. I... I'm going this way. You're following, so where are you going? This way. Okay. All right. I'm going to go around this music stand and pass this guitar stuff. And then I'm going to go back the way I came. Where are you? Behind you. All right. You're behind me. You're a good follower. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You can be seated. <laughs> All right, is that too simple for you? Did you get what was happening? I wasn't following him, which is kind of the way we are with God. Uh, uh, we're saying, God, you follow me and bless me and take care of me and protect me. That's kind of what we do. But what Jesus is looking for is, I'm the leader, you're the follower, wherever I go, Whatever I do, whatever I say, you're there. 
as a follower. The, the issue of who's in charge is resolved. It's over. You have said, Jesus Christ, you are my king. You're God. You're my leader. You deserve to be my leader. You're the right leader. You're a good leader. It's okay with me if I'm a follower. All right? And it's an ongoing process. It doesn't just start and then you stop. It goes on the rest of your life. He leads. You follow. You listen to his voice. And you follow him. Remember that sheep passage? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. So let's, uh, let's look at three illustrations, three ways of looking at this, okay? Well, let's just start with a simple one. Here's, um, oops, I think I went a little too fast. Here's me before I was a Christian. From birth, I had an agenda, basically myself, my own self-interest. I was born that way. Did you know that every infant is intensely selfish? They really don't think about anybody else at all but themselves. Their needs. I want to be fed when I want to be fed. I want to be changed when I want to be changed. I want to be held when I want to be held. And I don't care how tired you are. I don't care if you're sick. Dad, mom. The world is about me and my needs and my desires. You know, as you grow, um, your parents try to help you not be so blatant about being centered on yourself. That's called manners and courtesy and all that stuff. But what happens is this. If you do not get free from being centered on yourself, you just get really good at it. You get to the place where you can make it work for you and appear to be really nice. But yet, at the bottom of it all, you're really concerned about what's in it for me. And am I going to be, am I going to like it? Am I going to be happy with it? Is it going to be fun for me? Apart from Jesus Christ, we're all locked into that. And that's where I started. My agenda focused on me. When I let Jesus Christ, have my heart. When I, I came to him in faith and trust and belief, there was an element of letting him have his way in my life. In other words, there were some things that he asked for right out of the chute. He asked me to give him some things as symbols of my surrender to him. So his agenda came into my life and wonderful it was, it was fantastic, but the frustrating thing is my agenda stayed too. And that's the struggle that the Bible talks about it between the old nature and the new nature in Christ. Um, here's, here's a little bit of my story. I didn't always operate well following Jesus' agenda. There were times when my agenda came back into uh, control of my life. And this, this is a miserable condition. When God's agenda is, at, is there, your, His Holy Spirit is in your life, His Word has you know, penetrated your memory, and yet you're living life your way. That was my experience. 
I offered him fresh surrender, fresh followership, welcomed him back as my leader in everything I could think of, and his agenda came back into a strong position over my agenda. This is kind of the normal Christian life, and what happened is as I grew in Christ, God's agenda got stronger and stronger and stronger. It didn't mean I didn't still have an agenda, or I wasn't capable of going back to doing things my way. It just simply meant he won most of the, of the contest of who's going to have their way. And I like that. I like it when God's in control. I also like it when I'm in control. But I like it better when he's in control. All right. Let me give you a, a vocabulary for this. The New Testament uses a multiplicity of words, many, many words to describe how the Christian life works. And here are some of them. Give up, yield, obey, submit, repent, humble yourself, follow. Familiar words? If you've read the Bible, it's one of the, if you're full of yourself and want your own way, these words aggravate you. <laughs> they irritate you. They make you want to stop reading the Bible. All right, here's another list. Give over. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Live in Christ. Depend upon Christ. Look to Christ. Imitate, imitate Christ. Be transformed by Christ. Wonderful words and phrases. Here's another list. Give out. Make every effort. Grow in grace. Stand firm. Fight the good fight. Produce fruit. Shine. Reflect. And all of that, I would suggest to you, is called living by faith. In other words, if you're going to define New Testament faith, you've got to get your arms around the whole list. Those are all commands. Those are not just suggestions. Live by faith. It's very possible. But there are some very active choices that you make on an ongoing basis, day after day after day after day, that keep that process of living by faith going. So, second illustration. Here is a, a little bit more complicated one. The transformation process um, begins in a Christian's life when they surrender their heart to Christ. Your kingdom becomes part of his kingdom. Yourself becomes part of his kingdom. All right? Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. And it is when that process of surrender to him begins. Um, there's a passage that I'd like to just introduce uh, into the mix this morning. It's in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen carefully, just a few verses. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, what are strongholds? Let's just think about that. Here we've got the overall control issue is settled. I've repented. I've given my heart and life to Christ. All right? But all of a sudden, horrors, I discover that there are specific control issues that I still have. Little strongholds. Each of them built around a lie. Something I believe I have to, uh, something I think I have to believe. Something other people tell me I have to believe about myself. 
And so I, I feel like I have to stay in control of that area in order to protect myself or in order to make sure I'm okay in that area. And that particular issue is, uh, is one that we're going to talk about right now. Taking every thought captive. Let me just read the rest of this. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let's think about this. Let me give you an example of a stronghold. Um, it's probably the most common stronghold I've run into uh, in my own life and in the lives of others. Um, over the years, um, hundreds and hundreds of people have come to me as a pastor and basically said, um, I understand the Christian life and I know it works for you. It just doesn't work for me. Um, at first I was shocked when people would say that. Not anymore. What they're basically saying is I'm an exception. I can't obey God. I can't follow Jesus because I'm different. You have to understand my circumstances. My situation is more complex. You can't expect from me what you can expect from other normal people. So what am I talking about here? person says to you or to me or to God, my past makes me an exception. I came from a dysfunctional family. Most common thing I hear these days. Everybody came from a dysfunctional family. Everybody's parents were self-centered and made bad choices because of their self-centeredness, right? I mean, I don't think anybody has perfect parents. I'm not the perfect parent, that's for sure. My kids tell me now, and I'm shocked, but they think our family was a little dysfunctional. And I'm going, come on, you had the perfect family, you know. Because I came from a tough family background, maybe my parents got a divorce, uh, maybe my father or mother was an alcoholic or a drug addict, maybe I lived with depression in my parenting, I mean, the parents that parented me. Um, it wasn't a normal upbringing. So, Pastor Jan, give me a break. I'm an exception. I'm damaged. I have had repeated failures in my life. I, I've messed up in marriage. I, I've made disastrous mistakes. I've lived with disappointment and despair and depression. Pastor Jan, I'm medicated for depression. You can't expect the Christian life to work for me the way it works for you. Question, is that true? Is it true that there are special cases who don't have to obey Jesus because of their messed up past. That's a lie. It's a lie our culture embraces. Because we believe in the culture of the victim. We believe that if you're a victim, for whatever reason, 
you have a good excuse to not be held accountable to what everybody else is. Let's take a look at something else here. My pain makes me an exception. Pastor Jan, I was abused. I was sexually abused. I was verbally abused. I was physically abused. I was mentally and emotionally abused. I am an abuse victim, and therefore you can't expect the Christian life to work for me like it works for you. Remember, what we're talking about here is a stronghold. It's a way of saying to God, I have to stay in control here. You can't have this because I need to control this issue or this area of my life. So, how about illness? Here's a person who says, I have MS. I've got heart disease. I've got cancer. I've got diabetes. I've got, you name it. Therefore, I am a sick person. Pastor Jan, you cannot expect the Christian life to work for me like it works for a healthy person. That's a lie. That is not true. I can't expect that. God can't expect that. In fact, your illness can be a way of embracing more of Him. Instead of being independent because you are so self-sufficient and can do anything yourself, you're dependent, your illness, your weakness drives you to Him in a whole deeper way because you need Him. It's not an excuse not to follow. It's a wonderful reason to follow. Let's talk about this a little bit more. My poverty makes me an exception. There are folks out there who just simply say, look, I, I never finished high school. Uh, I don't have any talents. I'm not very smart. I have no financial resources. I have no willpower. I am homeless. I'm a street person. I'm on welfare. You can't expect the Christian life to work for me. That's a lie. Anybody can follow Jesus. No matter how much they have or don't have. There are no exceptions. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his offer to be your king and your leader and to take over in your life is available for anyone. No excuses. My poor self-image makes me an exception. I've never been affirmed. My parents never told me they loved me. My mother never hugged me. I, I've been so betrayed and abandoned and unloved and rejected in my life. Just listen to my story, Pastor Jen. Let me tell you why I'm an exception. I've, I've just really had it tough. So you come along with this message that following Jesus is for everybody. I can't buy that. I have to insist, no, I'm an exception. That's a lie. And that's the kind of thing we build strongholds around. And that's why we keep control. Because we think we have to, because we've convinced ourselves that we have an exception clause. 
Here's another kind of exceptionism. This is more the proud, <laughs> arrogant kind. I know nobody in here has a problem with this, but this is the person who says, um, I, I don't need God in control over me because I, I'm better than other people. I'm, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Uh, this is the person who says, I'm... Um, let me see if this is going to work or not. There we go. My intellect and my accomplishments put me in a different category. I am really smart. I have a high IQ. I'm quick, clever, brilliant. I have a deductive ability beyond what other people have. I'm usually ahead of the curve. I'm really aware. I keep way up on the culture. I know what's going on. My accomplishments... Um, I have a fine family background, a five-star education, a successful career. I have wealth. I have power. I have stuff. I have celebrity status. People like me. I'm invited to parties. Um, my giftedness. Um, I have enormous talent. I'm, I'm a good athlete. I have superior strength. And coordination and speed and whatever. I have artistic expression. I am creative, much more than the average person. And I am a pretty good person. Um, you know, I, in fact, when you tell me I need Jesus, I'm not sure I do. Because I know a lot of people who say they're Christians and I live a better life than they do. I've, I've never messed up. I consistently make wise choices. I, I do many good deeds. I usually find the, the high moral ground and I have a better performance than most. In fact, I think I'm a better person than a lot of Christians. Who needs Jesus? Kind of reeks, doesn't it? I mean, that's pretty arrogant. But there are people like that. They're full of themselves and their own performance. And they think that's all it takes, is a great performance. Well, I've, I've given you uh, this illustration to, to tell you how to, to take it apart, all right? The Word of God is essential. Now, this, one of the reasons we read this book is because it clarifies reality. It, it gives you categories of thought that the world doesn't give you. It gives you the way God thinks. It gives you the way God leads. It helps you stay on track following Jesus. So you need the Word of God, and when you use the Word of God properly, the truth sets you free. In other words, it starts to expose the lies, the things you think you have to believe. The Word of God exposes them for what they are. They are not true. All right? God gives you other Christians, and I call that the battering ram of spiritual gifts. Each of you have a different spiritual gift, you're needed in the body. Why? Because you help clarify what's really true. My wife, for instance, has spiritual gifts that have helped me in our marriage. Charm is here this morning uh, with her mom, Bobby Jo. And uh, she is amazing because she helps me see things that are blind spots to me. Strongholds are like that. They're usually so close to your own ego, you can't see them. All right, But she, in grace and patience and love, gently says to me, Jan, I see something that I don't think you see. Would you let me help you with that? 
And I do the same with her. And that's what we do in the body of Christ. Christians do that with each other. We say, this is a blind spot. I can tell. Would you like some help? I'll I'll be loving. I'll be gentle. I'll be truthful. But let me help you with that stronghold, that blind spot in your life. So spiritual gifts. And then we go back to repentance because repentance is a lifelong process. We always keep on offering Jesus fresh surrender. Yes, Lord Jesus, you can take over in my life. The result is that a stronghold can be destroyed. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 10 says? Dismantling strongholds is a possibility. In fact, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be doing that the rest of your life. Okay, I'm going to go to um, the third illustration. I like this one. Uh, I call it the pie illustration, but it's basically following Jesus from the inside because he's given you the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. He has your heart. All right, he's starting to work from the inside. Now, let me just give you the key on this. See on the right, it, um, yeah, you're right. It says our sin nature is the burgundy and the lavender is um, the new nature. But you notice right around the center of the, the wheel there, of the pie, the lavender is starting to spread out from the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. What makes it complex is those categories. Because you and I are made categorical. We all have categories like that. And we operate differently in different categories. For instance, you're right now in your church category. You see that on the left? You've got thought life, entertainment, recreation, children, money, church, spiritual disciplines, appetite for food, sex drive, leisure, habits, work, marriage. Okay, that's an arbitrary illustration. That's not all the categories we have. It's just basic categories that most of us have, Okay. In the church category, you guys are amazing. I mean, you're sitting here paying attention to an old preacher. I mean, goody, goody for you. You're wonderful. I love it. But you you know how to behave in church, right? You sang the songs, you stood, you sat, you put money in the offering. A lot of you helped out at Alder Lake this week. Uh, Before that, it was VBS. And you were all here with your sleeves rolled up. Uh, This is a very active, participatory church. It's a wonderful group of servants. right? You know how to do church. There's people back with the children right now. They're in the nursery. They're changing diapers. I mean, you've got some fantastic servants here. In the church category, you do well. But what happens when you get in your car and you head home? What's the next category? Lunch? Nap? Or, uh, that's mine. Uh, (laughs) Sports? Drive in the country? I I don't know. What what are you going to do next? Entertain yourself? What are you going to do for leisure? I don't know. The Seahawks playing yet? No, they're not. Okay. That's a category, by the way. (laughs) My wife tells me all about that one. Okay. Money. Okay, you get home and the wife says, hey, sweetheart, I think we got a problem. 
Uh, would you sit down with me? Oh, come on, come on. It's not a big problem. We'll do it later, next week. All right, you don't want, you don't want to mess with that category. Um, just around and around, everybody has these different categories, and we have different kinds of followership in the different categories. We're not following at the same level. In fact, let me just show you what this looks like if we play it out. So the lavender, this is a person who's growing as a Christian, and they're growing categorically. In other words, they're not growing at the same rate in every compartment. All right, here's a person who's been a Christian for quite a while. But look at how uneven their growth is. In some categories, they've really killed it. In other categories, they're lagging way behind. What's the difference between categories where obviously the Holy Spirit isn't very much in control and categories where he's really in control? Big time? What's the difference? Two words. Little words. Very common words. The word no and the word yes. If you're saying no to Jesus, you can't lead me in this area. I'm in control here. I'm afraid that if I give you control, I won't like it. I'm afraid that if you take over in my life, I'm not going to have any fun. So no. You can have my church life, but you can't have my sex life or my recreation. Because I don't think you know how to have fun. You just know how to do church, Jesus. The inventor of fun. What audacity when we say to him. The one who, the one who designed our pleasure, our capacity for pleasure. And we say, if I follow you, I won't have any fun. Man, that is so crazy. This is actually a real person. Um, I, I diagrammed a, a guy that I was working with who had started um, his surrender in the area of habits. He was actually a, a drug addict and an alcoholic when he met Christ. And of course, that was the big issue. Um, when he came to Christ, he thought he gave Jesus everything when he gave him alcohol and drugs. You know, Jesus ought to be happy with that, right? I gave you the biggies. No, that was, that was a start. That was one category. But you notice that um, he's, he's made a huge difference in that man's life in the category of habits. He's really sensitive to the Holy Spirit when it comes to anything that is addictive in his life. Anything that takes over in his life. But you notice, except, except the area of food, this guy gained 50 pounds after he stopped drinking and, and drugging. Now, why did he gain 50 pounds? Because it never dawned on him that his food area, his diet, was something Jesus could control or would want to control. He thinks of his eating as his eating. He doesn't see Jesus telling him anything about what to eat or how much to eat. 
He thinks, I feel like pizza. Or I feel like McDonald's. Or I feel like, you know, a taco. It's all about what he feels like eating at the moment. But he, it never dawns on him. Jesus, what do you think I should eat? What would be good for me to eat? What, do my, what does my body need? And how much does my body need? He's not following Jesus in the area of his diet. Because he doesn't even think about following Jesus that way. And many of us don't either. Right? My diet is my diet. What I eat, I choose to eat. I'm in control. And the fact is, what you eat should be under the control of Jesus Christ. Makes a whole lot of difference, and you'd stay a whole lot healthier. Well, I, uh, I want to go back to where you say no and where you say yes. You can see where this guy's been saying yes, and you can see where he's been saying no. If we looked at your life, we'd see exactly the same kind of thing. It wouldn't be exactly the same because you have different performances or different, different levels of followership in different categories. But it would look something like that. And what's going on here is this. In the, in the categories that are mostly burgundy, this person is saying no to the leadership of Jesus. In the categories mostly lavender, this person is saying yes. And you can expect the Holy Spirit, when, you've say, when you're saying no, you can expect the Holy Spirit to convict you. He will bother you. Now you can quench him. You can say no so loud and so long that you can shut off his voice. And some of us know how to do that. In fact, all of us do. But saying yes softens you. It opens you up to more and more of his leadership. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's conclude with something that is strategically important and it'll make the difference on this whole series of messages of whether you get something really solid out of it or not. As I've been talking today, I would bet that some of you have already heard the Holy Spirit say, I really want a new yes from you. It's already dawned on you. You should be saying yes in an area where you're saying no to the leadership of Jesus. I mean, think of the arrogance of people like you and I saying no to Jesus Christ. The God who created us, who runs this universe, the God we're inevitably going to be confronted with when we die, and we arrogantly shake our fist in his face and say, don't touch my life. I'm going to live it the way I please. Is that crazy or what? But I'm going to ask you today to start saying yes where you have been saying no. And some of you are older Christians. You looked at those categories and you recognize that there's some areas where you have been saying no. 
It hasn't even occurred to you to say yes in those areas. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. You can lead me. In fact, I totally want you to lead me in this area where I have been saying no. Please come in and and lead. I'm going to take a little bit of a risk. I'm just going to ask for a show of hands. Nobody's looking around but me. Did the Holy Spirit speak to you about an area where you've been saying no, where you need to say yes? Just slip up your hand. Anybody at all? Okay, most of you have raised your hands. Thank you. I know the Holy Spirit's been speaking and working. And I would ask you to do this. Take what he has said to you today seriously. This is not just another church service. This is about moving ahead with your followership of Jesus Christ. It will come down to saying yes instead of no. It's that simple. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we each process what you've been saying to us, as we decide what it is that you're asking for in our lives, that each of us will be wise enough to say yes, take over. I yield this area to you. I submit to you. I want you to lead. I want you to be in control. Lord Jesus, I will follow you. Lord, thank you that it's a process. Thank you that we're... um, You just don't hit us with everything at the same time. You deal with one issue after another, but it's a lifetime of following. And Lord, I pray that this morning we'll have made a difference in our total followership for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.